Frank. Well, welcome, guys. Um, I want to set a little uh, trajectory for the class and for what we're going to be doing. So the first thing I need to deal with is where the bathrooms are. So if you're here and you don't know where the bathrooms are, uh, straight out the center aisle, gals to the left, guys to the right, and you walk to the wall and just down the stairs, bathrooms for the girls are on the left, <clears throat> guys are on the right. We have now got about 80 minutes in which we're going to go in this class. So here's the, the deal for tonight. Feel free to step up and walk out. There's bottles of water just out in the lobby if you need a bottle of water. But we're likely not going to take a break um, because if we take a break, we're going to lose 10 to 15 minutes just to get everybody back in the room. So we'll go straight forward um, in our 80-minute time. This is basically, just for you guys, it's, it's really helpful sometimes to just know where the night's going. So we'll do, I'll do a little bit of an introduction, trajectory of the class. Tonight's topic is dealing with political gridlock. So that's something I think we would all say, it seems like that's true, that there's political gridlock. We're gonna talk about the whys behind that and a lot about civil discourse, how to talk in a way that's civil. We're gonna have some interaction and then we'll have an interview at the end of the night that you all will be able to participate in as well. Let me tell you something just about <clears throat> the nature of how the class is gonna be run. If you're expecting to walk in here and just get lectured to, I'm not the guy that you want teaching the class, you're gonna participate in the midst of this and you're gonna participate with people that are around you. I'm gonna start by saying this and you're gonna hear this a lot. One of the reasons we're designing this class in a highly participatory manner is that what we're, one of the things you're gonna hear is that one of the reasons we think that there's political gridlock is that our culture doesn't know how to discuss tough topics anymore. Or there's a level where we don't have a lot of platforms where we can in a principled way disagree with each other and even seek to learn from each other, participate as a community um, together. And when I'm talking about a community, I even mean more than just as a church. Out there in the world to understand we are a community, we need to come to decisions together to advance our overall community. So because of that, this is going to be an experiential and participatory learning experience so that we might model what some of this might look like. So if you're coming in, this class is going to be more when you walk out about cultivating discernment than it necessarily is mastery. So you're not going to walk out of here and go, man, I have all of those issues mastered. They told me what to believe on this issue, this issue, and this issue, and I've got it. And let, and let me tell you, part of that's really good for this reason. There's way too many people in our world that don't think and just are the ones like sitting in the room right now that want to raise their hand to just go, tell me what to believe about politics. Right? If the Bible was that black and white about it, I'd tell you. The reality is it isn't. It gives us a lot of wisdom and ways to think. So we want to cultivate that discernment. So let me put an exclamation point on something that I'm afraid too many people do not do, and sadly enough, many Christians don't do, and that's think. I was at a, a political forum with some Christians about a month and a half ago, and I watched as the guy giving the address um, very insightfully was going after, and I'm, I'm watching a lot of people, there's some people engaged, but there's many people disengaged. 
and they're flipping through things and they're looking at their phones and they're going through all this. And I, this is literally, this is gonna sound very extreme, but I literally thought to myself, we are talking about really substantial issues that affect culture and we have people that want comfort and convenience so bad, they just wanna to be told the answer and they don't wanna to have to think for themselves. And I literally thought in my head at that moment, that's how somebody like Hitler gets to power, is a bunch of people just going, just tell me what to believe. I don't wanna think, just tell me what to believe. That's how things like that happen. And I think one of the biggest curses in our culture is that we have adopted and have idols. We hold too, high, too tightly to the idea of comfort and convenience, which leads to just little trite statements. Make it as simple as possible for me, break it down into sound bites that we get from our news media, and then that's it. So we believe political ads, or we believe sound bites, and in the end wonder why there's such complexity with it. So if you're coming in here for mastery, you're probably not gonna get that from this. And then the other thing is this is, a lot about discernment, not mastery, and also it's about character more than it is deep amounts of competency. Now, you're gonna learn stuff in here, okay? There's some things, I'm gonna deliver content, we're gonna deliver content, there is gonna be truth espoused in here, but what we're really after is that in these four weeks, you would develop a structure to be discerning and that you would understand character counts in this stuff. Character really, really counts in this um, more than you being after mastery um, or necessarily deep, deep amounts of competencies. I'm not promoting incompetency, okay, or saying don't master this stuff, but we're not going to be able to do all that. The next thing is we are um, encouraging in this class kind of a co-teaching model in the midst of this. So you'll see in the first couple weeks we'll have some interviews and um, right now we have three other people that are going to be speaking into this other than just me. And we're going to ask them some questions specifically and some of their perspectives may come out on areas that we aren't necessarily saying this is the line in the sand biblical truth on this issue. Where that is, we will say, but we're trying to develop other people's opinions. We're going to encourage you all to speak into these issues so that we can learn from each other. So part of this class as well is going to be developing a community where students are learning from the teachers, the teachers, myself and the others, are learning from the students, and the students are learning from each other. So that's the way this is going to work out, the kind of culture of this class, if you will. You guys, anybody have any questions on that? Does that make sense? All right. Um, here's what I want to ask you guys. This is your first uh, level of participation. What are your hopes for the class? So I'm going to ask you to be a little bit bold here and raise your hand. Try to speak a little loud so people can hear. But why, do you, why did you come to a class like this? What are your hopes for it? Yeah. Yeah. So the statement was there's so much noise going on right now. We're in the middle of an election season. 
And he said, I know the class isn't directly related to the election season, but I will say this, we are strategically placing it right in the middle of the election season. <laughs> um, so it doesn't directly apply to the 2012 election, um, but we are placing here. And so his, his hope is just to develop a little bit of civil discourse in the midst of all the noise and rhetoric. That's really great. He said, I want to take all the emotion out of who wins the election and begin to seek truth in the scriptures and say, how does this inform me in such a way that all of this emotion um, is a little bit tempered by truth? Let's say it that way. So Bud says, get the big picture and refocus on who's really in charge. And he made a statement of, this isn't the first time something has felt like this in history. So to remember the sovereignty of God in the midst of it. That's great. So from a political standpoint, to understand how do we be in the world, but not of the world? That's great. So what is the Christian's responsibility and the church's responsibility in the political community, the political process? What role really do we play? Yeah. So Sean said that the question specifically coming out of a lot of younger generation and people just in general is an overall apathy. And I would say because of the gridlock and a sense of does this even matter? And he got into even the electoral college and does my vote really in the end matter in the midst of this system? Um, so just a general apathy, Frank. So what is the best Christian response in the midst of, and what Frank was saying is not just apathy, but it's, only, it's almost animosity of I'm going to make a fundamental statement by removing myself from this process. 
I'll just add a little question to that as well as can you really remove yourself from the process? But then a question of what's the Christian's responsibility um, in the midst of that? Do we have an option to just move out of it and not vote? Somebody else? So what Janet was saying is just the idea of does it even matter and the, the necessity of understanding the platforms. What are these people running on? What are their convictions? And, and maybe I'd add to that of some people asking the question of even if in the end are they elected, can they really do anything anyways? And is there such a gridlock that can we actually get anything done anyways? Yeah, she said there's a lot of people, the first statement she made is, is a really strong statement of there's many people that approach their politics like it's a religion. I mean, it's, it's a religious conviction, deep amount of passions, but then when, what she got into is that sometimes their passion is so over the top that you can't even have dialogue about it. You can't even get into it, that it's so, um, this is the way it is, I don't see it any other way, and they're so deeply passionate about it. We're going to get into that a lot tonight. So the confusion of nobody tells the truth, right? It, it, it's pretty revealing when you have the first debate and now every news station has, and they're publicly stating, truth fact checkers, right? I mean, it, it used, like in the last election, you would have had people like that online and you had to go to online, but now everybody's doing that and so suspicious and so cynical that the news stations are like, we will have the facts for you after this election based upon did, is what they said actually the truth? And the way it comes out is both of them aren't at least based upon the fact checking, whether or not those are actually the facts, um, are, it seems like they're lying. And a lot of times it seems like they're just trying to win. They just wanna win. So that was kind of some of the confusion of this. All right, well let's, um, why this class? Um, this is, there's going to be a little teaching moment here uh, that is definitely important, uh, especially for Graceful Citizenship is the title, and as Sean alluded to, the next statement 
is provocative in itself. Now, I'm not suspecting everybody agrees with the subtitle of this class, but we're saying we do. Politics matter. And so I want to talk to you a little bit about the why of this class. Here's the first thing. We believe as a church that this class is worthwhile, and it's worthwhile to talk about um, politics because we think it's the church's job to equip Christians for all of life. So at Redemption Church, we have a statement where we say, all of life is all for Jesus. So we want to equip people. We think it's our responsibility to equip you for life. And the reality is, whether you like it or not, you are living in a political community. That's just a statement of fact. In a highly polarized one at that. So how do we navigate these waters? If each coffee shop I go into at this time, people are having these conversations, how am I supposed to think about these things as a Christian? So we want to equip you for all of life, and politics is a part of that. The other thing is we want to help equip citizens and help citizens, Christian citizens, embrace and embody what it means to honor God with our political lives. So I'm addressing some of the things you said. What does this really look like to honor God with my political life. We want to address that. So this will include the pursuing of graceful citizenship. And this will include, and this is where the participation is really going to come in, the cultivation of your imagination for what we're going to call public justice. Okay. As you look at the book of Romans, one thing that you would see very clearly is that governments are instituted by God to carry out public justice. And that, that includes two realms, to punish the wrongdoer and to promote the common good. All, the good and the punishing of wrong all falls under the umbrella of justice. So a simple definition of justice would be giving to creation its due. That each human being would be treated in the way God intends them to be treated. That we would treat systems and institutions the way they should be treated. So giving them their due, the word also in the Bible is translated righteousness. That we would function in a righteous manner. So here's what I want you to understand of why we think fundamentally this matters. Is that the gospel of Jesus Christ, as you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, is not just, okay, here's what I hear what I'm about to say. It is not just about individual salvation. It's not less than that. Okay, the, the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is not less than individual salvation. That's a huge part of it, but it's a lot more than that. It literally is the message of God coming back to rescue and restore all that was lost in the fall. Now, I'm going to ask a question here and, and answer it. How much was lost in the fall? How much was affected by sin based upon the biblical teaching? Everything. So Isaac Watts has that famous Christmas carol, him Joy to the World, right? And you know the beginning, Joy to the World, the Lord has come, right? One of the verses later on down in it, he says this, No more let thorns or thistles grow. Uh, no more let sin, I'm sorry, he says, No more let sin or sorrows grow or thorns infest the ground. He's come to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Okay, so if what we just said is true, how far is the curse found? It's found in everything. When Jesus comes back and says, I am Lord and I am Savior, he's claiming lordship over 
all of creation, and he's saying, and I am the Lord of it, and I'm the Savior of it. So therefore, that means a really simple statement. Everything matters. There's a, a guy I really like that is a Christian political philosopher, and he says it this way. If you have a Christ who doesn't care about the arts, who doesn't care about music, who doesn't care about politics, who doesn't care about education, let's say the other one, let's say it again, who doesn't care about politics, then you have a very little Christ over a very little kingdom. So we'll say it based upon this class. If you have a Christ who doesn't care about politics, you have a very little Christ who oversees a very little kingdom. Now that raises a host of questions. Some of them are you asking questions of, so what are you saying? Should we have a theocracy? Should there be one religion in the United States? Just let me say this real short. That's not what we're saying, but we're saying God does care about all of this stuff and therefore will inform our lives in the midst of it. So that's why we would have a class like this, is that the scriptures do speak to it, and the gospel is that big, and we want to prepare you for all of life. So let me just say that again. We want a class like this because the gospel speaks to it, the Bible speaks to it, and because you live in this world. So unless Christianity is just this privatized thing that's you in a corner going, I have my religious experience, but it doesn't really affect my day-to-day -day life. If you have a faith that affects your day-to-day -day life, it has to affect the political sphere and how you function as a citizen. So here are the goals for the class. Um, and these goals, these four goals, will really get at what the content of each class is going to be, and they do build upon each other. So here's the first one. The first goal of this class is to create space for and to engage participants, that's you all, in civil discourse and respectful conversation. So we want to engage you in civil discourse and respectful conversation. Next, I keep hearing that like something's behind me and it's that speaker. To help participants understand the biblical foundations for Christian political thought and action. So what are the biblical foundations behind the way the Bible would tell us to think politically and our political action. The next one is to help participants understand the theological foundations for a biblical view of politics and citizenship. So there's a little nuance in that that may seem the same. And then the last one, to begin learning about and discussing current public policies. So here's what I want to tell you. The first three weeks are three weeks in a row. Then we're off for Halloween week, we're off the first week of November. The last one we'll do is November 14th. Frank, correct me if I'm wrong on those dates. So it's three weeks in a row, two weeks off, and then one week on. So that last week, one of the topics that we'll talk about, along with other public policy issues, which you will have engaged in discussions about, is this idea of submitting to the governing authorities. This will be post-election, right? Someone will have been elected and we'll talk um, a bit about that as well. So that's the goals for this class. So here's what I want to do now. Tonight, um, specifically, we have got about an hour right now to deal with this big idea of political gridlock. It feels like we're in the midst of political gridlock and we want to ask the question of why. Why are we in this state of political gridlock? So 
Before we get into this, I have this note down and I forgot to jump to it, so I want to say this. Tonight, though I just got a text message, so let me read this text message before I say something wrong. I want to really, um, so $12 each are the book. Tonight when Aaron gets here, he'll have a credit card machine for you to buy this book. Here's what I want to say. Buy the book. If you can afford 12 books, 12 bucks, not 12 books. If you can afford 12 books, I recommend you give it to all your friends. But if you can afford 12 bucks, buy the book. Uh, this is an outstanding book that really gets at some heart of, of the problem of a lack of civility and what I would argue is a part of the real problem in our political gridlock. So if you have a shot tonight, you have a credit card with you, get the book and begin to read it. It'll help you in the midst of the class um, as well. So here's the, the first goal of tonight is to help create civil discourse and respectful com conversation. So here's what we know, okay? This is so important for the rest of this class. I know there are people in this room with differing political viewpoints, okay? There are, and the political views are not always simplistic. There's complexity to them, and with many of them, there's ambiguity with them. There's complexity and ambiguity. Even the ones that we Christians would go, those are black and white issues, and we believe the Bible would speak to black and white issues. Many of those things are in law and we have to function in a world where there's complexity with how we navigate the waters of those worlds and there's ambiguity with how we proceed forward. What that then demands is some civil discourse, some respectful conversation to understand there are Christians on the other side of the aisle, even in this room right now. So we wanna to begin to cultivate some practices of civil discourse. There's a statement that I came across in my studies for this, and it said this, the practice of civil discourse belongs to the church. I want you to just think about that for a minute. I'm going to say it, so think. Remember we said that's a prerequisite to this class is that you think. The role, the practice of civil discourse belongs to the church. Any thoughts on, the, on that statement? So through a lot of the history, a lot of the political discourse and public, when we say politics, understand we're talking about the, the public community that there's a reality of what's happening publicly in the midst of this. We're going to get more into this. But in the history of the church, the, the church in the history of the United States, the church has played a significant role in public discourse and in political discourse. So stay on that. The practice of civil discourse, so civil, in, that's public as well, and civil is the way you engage publicly. Civil discourse belongs to the church. Eugene. He said that statement implies that you're actually in conversation with people who are different than you and who disagree with you. Let me ask you this um, really quick. Somebody defines civil in that statement. The role of civil discourse belongs to the church. 
What does civil mean? Okay, respectful would be one way to define civil. Civil is also what Eugene said. It demands that you're engaging with people that are different than you. So civil discourse is respectful discourse in the midst of the public sphere. The civitas, right, that Latin word, the civitas, is the public arena. So it's respectful discourse in the midst of the public arena. And this statement says that civil discourse belongs to the church. Walter. I'm not sure I heard the first part, but I think I'm going to get this right, so fill it in if I didn't. But just the, the image of the body that's given, did you say cells? Yes. Yeah. So the different parts of the body, even by Paul's metaphor of how you describe the church, is that it is different. And under a roof like this come people of different generations, of different occupations, of different backgrounds, that they do, the church is made up of a collection of people from the civitas, from the public arena. And so you really can have civil discourse, a public discourse in the church, because you have people from varieties of places in the midst of it. Here's something I want to say. It belongs to the church, civil discourse. And I want to focus on the idea of respectful conversation. It belongs to the church. The church is defined in the Bible as the body of Christ, right? And the people of God. So Galatians 5, I wonder how often we think about the fruit of the Spirit as defining our political discourse. Let me remind you what the fruit of the Spirit is. Love, joy, peace. Okay, that's something that was brought up here, is that a lot of these public or political conversations don't seem peaceful. So love, joy, peace, patience. I'm going to kind of emphasize these ones I think we made to hear. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. How often do you turn on the news stations and see the dialogue that's happening and the word that you would use to define it is, that's kind. Those people are being kind to each other. So love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. Like how many times have you listened to Ann Coulter and gone, she's gentle. She's a gentle, or Rachel Maddow, she's gentle. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, right? So it's very interesting. In the midst of the church, where the Spirit of God is filling the people of God, they are to display the fruit of the Spirit. It seems like civil discourse, respectful conversation, belongs in this place. And maybe even uniquely belongs to this place. Here's the next thing, is the example of Jesus... Right? So Jesus Christ himself in John chapter 14, verse 9, said to Philip, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Now, many times Christian political advocates, they're right in saying God cares about the public arena. God cares about politics. And then they go after it in a very crusading mentality. And I would say maybe step back and go, if the very one we know in human form who is God and who if we've seen him, we've seen the Father, 
how would Jesus, how did Jesus, and how would Jesus engage in the public arena, even with people that he disagreed with, and saw differently than? If you watch Jesus in public environments where it talks about the crowds, Mal references this in his book, the numbers of times you see crowds referenced in Jesus, only like one does he go off on people. And it's actually people, religious people, who he really goes off of in a crowd environment. Every other one, he's going after people that are different than him, who are outcasts, who may be opposite of him in a very graceful, respectful way. So if the spirit, the fruit of the spirit, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and the model of Jesus is that, the other thing is that the church is called to be the light of the world. Right? We are the light of the world. We are supposed to act in such a way that the world sees our good deeds and, in fact, then gives glory to God who's in heaven. So political discourse belongs to the church. You just studied in 1 Peter chapter 2 that we are to be a holy nation. The church is. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, like a nation within a nation of going, this is what life looks like under the lordship of Jesus, which includes the way we engage in political and public discourse. Romans chapter 12, verse 8 says this. Now understand, you have to understand your context in this. Romans chapter 12, verse 8. All of the New Testament is written at a time where Christians are not in the majority. And they're living amongst people that they would call pagan, who didn't believe like them, who were developing systems and structures that were antithetical to the way God really wanted something. And in that context, Paul tells the Roman, Romans, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with all men. Okay, live at peace with Christians? Well, yes, because they're included in all men. Live at peace with those who disagree with you? Yes. As long as it depends upon you, live at peace with all men. Now, that's interesting, but then in the, we've, covered this passage recently too in 1 Peter chapter 2, 7. He says to this church, when Peter's writing to this church that's been dispersed because of persecution, he says, actually, in fact, don't just live with peace with all men. He says, honor all people. Honor them. That's a very interesting question. If we get down and you have conversations leaving to say, what does that mean? to honor those that we disagree with. So that's all under the, the idea of the practice of civil discourse belongs to the church. So I wanna ask you guys a couple questions um, as we start this. What comes to your mind, I'm gonna ask you to think about this for just about 30 seconds, and then I'm gonna ask you to get together and have a conversation amongst two or three people that are around you. So what comes to your mind when you think about incivility? incivility. What comes to your mind when you think about incivility, and I want to ask you to think about examples from your ordinary life. So what comes to your mind when you think about incivility, and give me some examples from your ordinary life. So take a few seconds and then gather with some people.
I made a note because I we don't have anything to rehearse, so I made a note. Um, the question to you is, can you be a Democrat and a Christian? Sure. And that's so filled with all of this. Sure, sure. When you did go, they may be uninformed or they may be, you qualified it by Bible means, but it's like, if they're there, they don't understand, that's why. Sure, sure, yeah. Rather go, no, they're just as, they love Jesus as much as I do, but it, it's a hard, it is. it's a hard, that's what shows it's full. Right, right, because the image that I see, All right, we're going to keep this conversation going. We're just going to do it together. So what comes to your mind when you think of incivility? So she said, it's just the inversion of the fruit of the Spirit. So if you said the fruit of the Spirit's love, joy, peace, patience, it's being unloving, being impatient, not being kind, being harsh. So it's the inversion of the fruit of the Spirit. Walter. Um, significant parts of the Psalms and Proverbs. I'm sorry, the uh, Psalms and what the prophets said in the Old Testament. By our standards, hmm. we're just pure ourselves. Yeah, very interesting. So he said, a lot of what you read in the Psalms and Proverbs can, by our standards, look like it's not civil, incivil. So right before in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, Paul's laying out an argument of the fruit of the flesh are these things, of which rivalry, jealousy, envy are all a part of, and he's contrasting it with the fruit of the Spirit. Yeah. So he was saying in the political scene, what you're seeing is rather than a legitimate discussion of issues, it's can I tear this other person down? Can I, you know, the, the way you hear it is smearing 
Like if I can smear this person, that's what we'll do. I don't know if you guys have heard um, in a lot of these talks, even in the last election when Obama was talking about crossing the aisle and doing all of this, a lot of people, there were older people, even within the last 20 years that served in Congress that would sit and say, you know, it used to be that there were aisles and we'd argue, but we'd go out afterwards, hang out together, have a cup of coffee, have a beer together, do whatever, and we were friends. And they literally were saying, that doesn't happen anymore. And fundamentally, why it doesn't happen is we're smearing each other all the time. So when you're, when you're going after my character at such a level and trying to unearth all the dirt, it's pretty hard to have a relationship at that level. That's really interesting. Um, another thing that's very interesting about our culture is, I can't remember what book it was, but I had, was reading a book and they were talking about how in our culture, um, 100 years, when Abraham Lincoln was president and running for president, you never had, you likely didn't even know what the candidates looked like. So all you had to deal with was what they were proposing in their policies and in their platforms and in their stance. And so you had citizens actually engaging ideas. Now you totally know their face. And in reality, you're going, I don't even know if I know what their platform is. You know, in, in a lot of ways of what they do from one to another. So that's an issue statement. What else? So sarcasm, contempt seem like they're in civil. Can you guys give some examples, just things that you've seen, maybe even just your everyday life or, I mean, maybe specifically in the political arena? Josh. That's pretty interesting. So he was saying when issues come up, they're, they're brought forth, and this is true on both sides, and this is the right or the righteous way. So if I'm right, civility can go out the window. Right? If I'm right, it doesn't matter. I mean, it, all, all bets are off. If I'm right, it doesn't matter if I'm nice. So here's one of the questions that comes out. When I don't wanna, we're not going to have time to have this discussion, but one thing I really want to be pressing into is what does it then look like to be civil? What really, in the end then, does it look like to be civil? And then to make it even more practical, I want you to be thinking, how do we become more civil? How do we view things the way God does in cultivating empathy with other people? If you get into the book, you'll see this as Mao's really arguing for creating empathy um, with other people, a good dose of curiosity that you actually want to know them as a person and what drives them to believe what they actually believe. And then a spirit of teachability where Mao says this isn't just learning and being taught what they believe, but it's actually believing that you can be taught something by them, by somebody you disagree with. You can actually do something. There was a statement in there specifically about the Psalms and the Proverbs and here's an idea that we want to promote here, is convicted 
civility. So it seems like we've really defined this. The big question now, and I'm going to make a, a statement to get to it, and we'll be getting more at this in the class, is we are not promoting civility at the point of, can't we all just get along? And what in the end this means is that you don't have any convictions. What we're promoting is to say, no, you have, we have deep convictions on policy issues, on platforms, on structures and systems, deep convictions, but we engage in those in a civil way. Political gridlock, one of the things that I'm arguing tonight is that political gridlock is there because we can't even have a conversation about anything anymore. It's so energized, so polarized that we can't even sit and have discourse. And in a country like ours, just so you know, if you sit there and say, we can't do anything anyways, you fundamentally don't understand the system and you don't understand the power of culture. So one of the ways is, one is the church, is that we are to witness to this reality. We are to be witnesses of convicted civility. This is what God intends this to look like. So in a room like this, there's two sides of the aisle. How can we have civil discourse, respectful conversation, and begin to model for people, hey, this actually can happen. And by the way, if you're deeply cynical, it's happened before in our country. For like more of the years of our country, there actually was civility. It didn't mean there wasn't disagreements and there wasn't smearing, but it certainly wasn't at the level that it has been. And I don't say that of, oh, the glory days, but to say it can happen and it can be modeled in the church. And so the, one of the arguments tonight on the first hand is that political gridlock is there because of a lack of civility. And many of the people who pursue civility and really champion it lack conviction or the people who have conviction lack civility. And we're saying as Christians, we should have convicted civility. Now, if we walk out of here tonight, you don't feel like you get all the answers. That's why it's a four week class. And then I wanna remind you that I told you that this wasn't for mastery, right? So we're gonna get into it. We're trying to develop discernment, which necessitates you guys leaving here and thinking about these things. So I wanna, um, we're gonna get to our next section of the other reason for political gridlock, and I'm going to invite Tom Schrader up. Uh, Frank introduced Tom. Tom is on the leadership team with Redemption Church, was the founding pastor and, and lead pastor of Redemption Gilbert for 23 years, and just in the past couple weeks um, has transitioned the last part of the transition of his lead pastor role, the pulpit, to Tim Mon, and Tim Mon is now the lead and preaching pastor there. Tom's sitting on the leadership team and has cared about politics kind of pre-conversion days all the way through has some really insightful thoughts uh, to bring. So we guys welcome Tom. Well, we'll see. Not sure what I have here. My quiet, but we'll see. Good evening. Yeah. Good to see you. I'm gonna get a music stand. Yeah. Here, here, Tom, I'll get it. Thank you. Good to see you all. Do you all go to Arcadia, to this campus? How many of you go here to the campus? All right, good, perfect, ton of you. Well, it's great to, uh, to be here with you. I was here a few times when we first did our merger, what was it, a little over a year and a half ago. So some of you are familiar faces, and to be able to see you is great. I made some notes. Uh, we have rehearsed nothing. 
zero, which will become painfully apparent to you in about <laughs> 30 seconds. But I made some notes while you were talking that may or may not work, so that's why I wanted to well, keep them. Here's the first thing I'd love to start with, is talk about, in your mind, why politics matter, because I know you think they do. So for a Christian... Well, in, in a, in a, they, they matter for probably the biblical case that you guys are going to build in the next couple of weeks. But from a practical perspective, Tyler and I were talking a couple of weeks ago, and I made the observation, the minute you get engaged in the issues you care about, you're going to get almost inevitably pulled into politics or policy. So you're upset about the schools your kids go to, the curriculum they have. Well, the solution to that is to, is to begin to deal with the school board, then the frustration. Uh, you begin to care. Uh, Bourbon Circus wants to move from down here to up here, and now you have a strip club in that mall, and you're going, we don't think that's good for us. Well, that's going to thrust you right into the city council and politics. Uh, you begin to care about people who are hurting around you, and you want to do something as simple as provide some sort of transition housing for you, that puts you under government regulation. Uh, so the opportunity that's through there, the responsibility we have to be part of inf it really infecting uh, the whole world and participating in the kingdom of God, which is reign over everything, uh, it just seems odd to me to go arts matters, school matters, business matters, and politics doesn't matter. Uh, I think it has that sloppiness to it, and sometimes we confuse, and, and, I, and I see why it happens, but, but I think a lot about policy and how much that affects just how we live, and, and that would drive, honestly, how I would vote. So where, where we don't want to tell you, or I wouldn't want to tell you necessarily who to vote for, I would tell you how I think you should arrive at casting a ballot. So to me, that's why it matters. It, it affect, and God put you in this country with this system and I, I think as, as, as legitimately concerned about the culture, we need to participate in. Hmm. So it matters on that, on that scale, at every level. I think it's very interesting what he said about if, if you care at all, whatever your issue is, um, you want to promote the arts in school, or you care deeply about justice and poverty and justice being given to the oppressed, uh, you're going to get political. I have a friend of mine that works downtown uh, with a ministry that long time has just tried to meet the needs of this community, high immigrant population. And one of his frustrations over his, the entirety of his life of watching this ministry is that they've tried to not get engaged politically. And yet if you care holistically about these people, you want to give dignity to them and get them jobs. And they're in this situation where they're undocumented. You're immediately like, uh, I have to look at the system. Like, why can they? So then you try to start doing it. They come up against gridlock there. And he's going, listen, if we really care about these people, we have to engage this issue. You know, we have to begin to get it. So there's a real practical side. There's a theological one, again, like Tom said, that we'll build. Tom, we were talking um, after the convention, um, the conventions, and you made an assessment that I felt like was incredibly insightful based upon the Republican National Convention and Mitt Romney. I'd just share that. Uh, and, and your conclusions. It, was it a relation to it was in relation. John Kennedy? Yes. Yeah. What, what, what he did, Sandy and I have had two months off. So uh, during the convention, I had a lot of time. And so I watched them, which probably you didn't watch a ton of them. But I, there was a clip they played from John Kennedy. 
And John Kennedy was my informative years. I was 11 years old, cared about politics. I was born and raised Catholic, so you know we had, we had pictures of Mary and a crucifix and John Kennedy, you know, in the house. I mean, I, I mean that's really what it was. If you could, and those of you that are not old enough to understand, that was really that that was huge. I mean, when John Kennedy died, I was in a Catholic grade school. I mean, it, we were we were distraught. But I went back to listen to John Kennedy's acceptance speech. Not, not the inaugural address. And if you listen to the acceptance speech, you see the forerunner of the inaugural address. So he essentially talks about the new frontier, and, and he, he pushes against what becomes the tagline for the inaugural address. So John Kennedy's tagline, if we say inaugural address, his tagline was what? That's not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. So we can argue about what you should be doing and government and all that, but there was a prevailing sense of self-sacrifice, engagement, uh, and it could be understood, but self-reliance to some extent. Well, Mitt Romney, in, in, his, in his acceptance address, must have used the phrase, Sandy and I were watching, you deserve, you deserve, you deserve. There's a real flip that's taken place. And, and I can't talk about these, these debates yet, but last time when, when you had uh, Obama and McCain, when you had questions from people, they, they constantly were around the theme is, what are you going to do for me? And, and part of this shift that's taken place, and it's, and it's what Romney was trying to say with his 47% that he mis, misspoke, mischaracterized, whatever, is that you have you had a sense of, we're in this together, and I have a contribution to it. So I, I use even the army. So, so it, it used to be, uh, Uncle Sam wants you. It, it used to be your contribution. But even now, the army doesn't recruit that way. They recruit by saying, be all you can be, and we'll be part of that. Come and give us something, so ultimately you get something else out of it. So there's that. That mindset where you have, when you talk about civility and gridlock, is you have this idea where you really have 400 million special interest group. And, and so when, you know, when I get up and say, you know, you work for me, well, what's he supposed to do? He's got 400 million people who want totally different things. And so the, I think a lot of the gridlock, and, and, and I made some notes on, your, on the civility part of it. I made an overall note that evangelism prepared me for civil discourse politically. Because there's just huge similarities in the way you share your faith, how you communicate with neighbors. You're talking about something that you, you feel strongly about, probably should be, probably stronger than, than taxes or, or, or limited government, whatever those might be. And you're talking to people who absolutely disagree with you and being able to share my faith over a period of time really taught probably some skills to have some civil discourse and dialogue in a system that's really, it's really polarized. It's, it is all that we said. I, I made notes as you, as you all were talking, but there's the media, um, you, you have those polemic figures on both sides, whether it be Rush Limbaugh or Sean Hannity and, and then MSNBC and all of the people that are Chris Matthews. And, and, and that's a whole industry for, for people like that, to me, who stir that up and, and it becomes, I can tell when somebody comes in to talk to me if they've been listening to talk radio or not. You can just tell. They're fired up. They're talking about these obscure things that no one knows about. 
uh, it, and, and, but, but I'll go, well, that must have been rushed today, you know. But I've had the same thing on a, Christian, on a Christian thing where I'll have Christians come in and want to talk about something, and I'll go, well, that must have been MacArthur today, or that must have been Sproul today, or, or that's what Keller was talking about. So, so that media begins to stir that up. And then just kind of embraced in the question, there's a general distrust. There's a, it, so a fact checker. There's a, you, had, you had unemployment statistics released last week. And the first thing the Republicans did was say, we, we, don't, believe, we don't believe those statistics. The Bureau of Labor Statistics has, has distorted these. Well, all of a sudden now, I don't trust anything. Gandhi said, once you, and I'm quoting Gandhi in here, but, 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 but once you question someone's motives, then trust becomes the issue. And then in his mind, then discourse becomes almost impossible. I, I, I want to go back um, because when he said that thing to me about John Kennedy, I'm, I'm thinking about this stuff and I thought, there's no way you can have but political gridlock if no longer what sells is think about what you can do for the commons, for the common good, but it's all about your individual good. And Tom just went on, I want to make this point, and said, now you have 400 million special interest groups. How can you look at the president with how many people are in the United States? 400 million, roughly 350, whatever the number is. So with 400 million, 350 million to 400 million, 400 million, 400 million people that all fundamentally are hearing, you deserve, you deserve, you deserve. And now we come and go, we want to have a political discussion. Polis, which is the word for political, means public community. The commons, the public commons. We, here's a fundamental problem with the political gridlock. We don't even have language anymore for a public commons. There's no such thing. So when you talk about the common good, nobody functions with that mindset. Nobody functions with the mindset of ask not what your country can do for you, because they're going, my country, it's all, I am my own country. This is just about me. Well, how, I mean, how do you not have political gridlock at that point? So now somebody says the electoral college, I'm frustrated with the electoral college, because in the end, these people only have to get 51% of the votes in the way it ultimately goes. They're not trying to win the masses in the midst of But how much harder is it now if you go, there's 400 million people we have to keep happy. So fundamentally, we're getting at something there with uh, the political gridlock question. Do you guys see, do you guys have any questions on that? I'm not gonna bring you guys in. If you have any questions on any part of what that was said. You, you have us, all right, go ahead. I can come back to that, go ahead. Yeah, great, great question. So he said, the Bill of Rights. So one thing that makes, you know, it's very famous in the U.S. So all men are created equal, you know, with God-given unalienable rights. The right, you know, you guys, what is it? What are the rights? Life, liberty, the pursuit of Life, happiness. liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? So everybody has that. He said, how do you reconcile that with this reality? And it's, it is true, but fundamentally, this is where you're going to get at the nature of human life is more than just your individual rights. Your individual rights can't be granted 
with no community. It never will happen like that, or you're gonna end up, I'm gonna make a really exaggerated statement, with 400 million individual nations all fighting for their rights. We live in a public commons, whether we like it or not. So what I'm saying is, you have a fundamental huge problem if you have a bunch of individuals that no longer have a mind, maybe even an imagination, for the reality that they live in a public sphere. You can't live as an individual unless you're gonna go be a hermit outside of the context of community. So when all we're thinking about is individualism, so I'm not speaking of communism or communalism that neglects the individual. I'm saying we're in such an, in, we're in the opposite predicament. We're in such an individual place that commonality, you used a statement and you, um, just a minute ago and you kind of paused and, I don't remember the statement you just used. I don't know. Commonality, just the whole idea of commonality and the common good is, is a fundamental problem. I, I, and a distinction there, a Bill of Rights, there's a difference between a pursuit of happiness and guaranteed happiness. And that's what it feels like. People are now lining up feeling that they're guaranteed happiness, the removal of all suffering and hardship and pain. And, and that, that kind of is how I would balance, balance some of that out. I'm gonna tell a story. I was sitting just to make an example. This might be beating a dead horse, but um, I was, I'm originally from Denver and I was at home with family uh, this weekend and all my family's there so it's not just my immediate family and got into a conversation and politics got brought up and there was a wife and a husband and the wife was very frustrated with her husband her husband was not in the room so she was very free to talk <laughs> and her husband's not in the room and she says all he does is listen to the political ads all he does is listen to the political ads and then she said he's a one-trick pony okay so he says this, I've been watching all of the ads from AARP, American Association of Retired People, and they say that if Mitt Romney gets elected, Medicare and Medicaid's gonna be gone. So that's all he keeps saying. If Mitt Romney gets elected, Medicare and Medicaid's gone. Medicare and Medicaid's gone. And I'm literally thinking about this and I'm going, it's all about him. Like, there's, there's not even a sense, and I'm going, this is my family. I'm going, I wish he'd at least care about my kids a little bit, you know, like a little bit about the generations of like what's going to be created. I mean, I'm going, he's got 10 more years max. I don't know, like, <laughs> please care about my children a little bit. There's five, no mind for that. Five if she has her way. Five if, yeah, yeah five <laughs> if his wife has her way. Exactly. There, there was an, staying on the civility part, there were, the, the president was, they're pushing him on, why, why, why did this not work for you last week? And his, and his latest comment was, now think about this in the context of what you're talking, that you said today was, I was too polite. I was too polite. I didn't want to get in. I didn't want to stir it up. I, didn't, I don't know whether that's right or wrong. I'm not making a judgment on it. But, but there is that, that polarization that's there that's now getting, and this may be way too intramural, but it's now getting baked into the system. So you have redistricting going on all over the country. You have 435 members of the House. Of those 435, roughly 400 of them are in safe districts, meaning we just had a primary with uh, Kirk Adams and Matt Salmon. That's our district. Whoever wins that primary wins the election. No Democrat's going to beat them. They would have to, Braden's here, but, but, but they, would have to, they would have to catch Matt Salmon with something. Very, he'd have to be on the coaching staff at Penn State for him to not win this. And even then, I, I, it, would be a, it would be a cliffhanger. There's no way he can lose this election. When the election's getting decided in a primary, 
by a smaller group of people who tend to be the most extreme of the party, left or right, Democrat left, Republican right, that person gets pulled further and further and further in this direction. So that now he's making promises, he's taking stands, and he's now held to a standard that's way over here that they would have never had before. So that's like baked into, that's baked into the system. And, 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 and so you look at, at, at the elections, and, and you made an interesting point of, they, they, they didn't know what Abraham Lincoln looked like. Well, Sandy and I were just driving from St. Louis up to Davenport through Springfield, and, and, and there were one of the sites of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And I remember when they reenacted those on C-SPAN, and I was really looking forward to this. I literally dozed after the first half. They went on for hours about this stuff. So the irony is we have more information available now than ever before, and a less informed voter who's now, who's now being swayed by ARP ads or Big Bird ads or whatever those ads are and formulating a whole thing, and, and, and now it just, it's, it's just polarized. No, one, no one's thinking, few people are thinking, and, and, and it's all sound bites of an extreme position. So that makes sense. So like our, our, our district's a great example. Matt Salmon and Kirk Adams, whoever wins that wins the election. And that was a very conservative primary. My tax cut's bigger than your tax cut. That was really what they ended up talking about over and over and over again. So you have all those things kind of, kind of at play in the system that civility's broken. And, and it's a microcosm of the culture. There's no civility in the culture. So if you're in a restaurant, the guy next to you is by himself, he's talking on that cell phone, totally disrespectful of you or anybody or anything around. Nobody holds a door. No one says, yes, sir. I mean, the, the civility all over, and then it spills over into this, into this discourse. Does that, does that make sense? No, it makes yeah. a ton of sense. And you add trust to it. it, it we're in a really deep trouble as a culture. I mean, it's just, it's not good. And it's really hard to, to turn that around. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, that's, but, uh, but my view is every silver lining has a cloud. Yeah. So that's the world I live in. So. Tom, Tom, talk about this. There, um, Nancy Piercy uh, has a book called Total Truth. She writes, she writes a book on worldview, and she talks about how politics are always downstream of culture. So this is one of the things we're trying to get at. So she, her argument is culture shapes the way politics or mm. fundamentally what you get from anything. So the ads are going the way they're going because we want them to go like that. We'll vote in that direction if those are like that. He, uh, President Obama says, my problem was I was too polite. So he says, if he was polite in that moment, and he goes, it didn't work. So the answer, I'll no longer be polite because the people don't want me to be polite. The people don't want this. So her argument is culture shapes politics, so therefore work at politics. I, I would like you to talk about the inverse of that, because I think a lot of people hear that and then go, well, it's not worth to engage in the political process, because culture shapes it. We should just start working at culture and not worry about politics, because this is never going to change until we work at culture. Well, I would never make a delineation either or, but, but I would say if, if what you're asking is, politics shaping what we're in, engaged in. Politics begins to shape everything. If you say policy, I'm more comfortable with, with policy. But I mean, it, it shapes 
your schools. It shapes whether you, it shapes how much water you have in your toilet, whether you have two, two gallons or 0.7 gallons. I mean, it shapes all of those things. Now, the exercise of it becomes, a, I think, a picture of the culture it's in, if, if that's what you're getting at. So the, so the discourse of it. I mean, the reason there's negative ads is because they work. So you use your uncle as an example. I mean, this guy, you honestly think Mitt, Rom Mitt Romney's going to get rid of Medicare and Medicaid? You think he could get some bill passed that's going to, my, my complaint would be nobody could ever get that done, which is part of the problem. So it, it's, it's that kind of shaping. I'm not sure I answered your question, but it's that kind of shaping of the politics that really influences the culture you're in. You're, you have, again, back to my cloud, you have this, if we don't, Sandy and I were talking about this, if you don't fix K through 12, you are screwed as a nation. So you, every seven seconds, a student drops out of high school. Think about that. Every seven seconds. So half the kids, roughly, that enroll in, in high school graduate. Well, well they're, not going, they're not going on to be CEOs and all these other... Well, there's a whole... What, what, how does the culture absorb that? How does the government and, and, and the, the policy that we're in, the system that we have, how does that support that? So you have some of these things that are baked into it. And one of my fears is we spend so much time worrying about President Obama and Mitt Romney that, that we fail to understand that you can have a lot more influence with a school board election or in the, or, I mean, we, we rank behind Mississippi in education, roughly, or down there in the equivalent. That shouldn't be. I mean, there's, there should be some sort of outrage about that, whatever that is that shapes the whole, begins the politics and policy, begins to shape the whole culture of that thing. You've used, um, you've used a couple times this statement of getting baked into the system. Yeah. I, I want you to talk about, and, and I've heard you at times say, America didn't get established as great because the people are great. No, I think that's another one of the garbage things that they tell you, the American people. American people are like people everywhere. What makes America great is the system not the people. Now, the people were allowed to flourish. I interrupted you. No, no, like, all, all I want to say In is terms of civility. I'm trying, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to help just the discernment factor of understanding systems do shape people. But they do in this. They do in this. I mean, it, there's a reason that you can see an immigrant come over here, and, and, and he comes over carrying a bag with all his possessions, and 10 years into it, He's got, you know, a house here and one in Coronado and one in Vail and five restaurants and four apartment buildings. Well, he was the same guy there that he was here. But there's a system that has with it a democratic voting process to it, but especially economic freedom. So how do you jumpstart an economy? Well, one of the things you do is take off all of the regulation that, that now we're going to argue about what's unnecessary, but you keep regulating and regulating. I watched an interview the other day with a guy that started Home Depot. He said, we could not have started Home Depot in the environment we're on today. It would take us about four to six million dollars just to get through regulation, paperwork we had to file. So now that's system. So the, as you ding away at the system, you begin to choke what made the country great. The country was not made great because the people in it were inherently better than people in other nations. They were in a place that allowed freedom, entrepreneurialism, creativity to explode. So the system is so important, the free market system. 
you know, the mini, and, and there's, there's all sorts of pictures, but do something as simple as look at North Korea and South Korea. Same history, same language, same all of this. But all of a sudden you have this split and you have one that has arguably, it's not communism, they'd argue about it, but it's, a, it's at least a, a government that is restrictive and limited by one guy in the north, an economic system that's very inbred. The south, some picture of democracy, some level of markets, and, and you have North Korea can't feed its people, South Korea is the 14th largest economy in the world. Well, that's system. That's not people that are different. That's a system that allowed that to happen. And so that would be, that, that's the concern about regulation. And, and is there a place for that? Sure there is. But, but pretty soon, there was a great line that, the, that was in the Republican convention. They used it and never used it again. They said, we're going to have a system where everything is free except the people. And I thought, that's interesting. So we're going to keep giving everything away. We're going to cha radically change the system. And, and so that's always been a big deal for me. But it's not popular if you're running for something to say, the American people aren't better than anybody else in the world. But I don't think they are inherently. I mean, I don't think you've got a gene in, in, in the American water and in the American people that's different than the people in the world. You put people in an environment with freedom and, and you're going to see the you're going to see the best. You'll see the worst, but you're going to see the best of people too. So I, I want you to speak to something. Let me finish this line of thinking. During the debates, <laughs> in the debates the other night, Obama mentioned deregulation, and he mentioned it in a negative way. He mentioned it in a negative way, and he mentioned it in a negative way, under the notion of that's what got us into this mess sure. in the first place was. We didn't have regulations on these people that did whatever they wanted. So here's what I want you to speak on is not necessarily regulation, deregulation, but specifically, so Washington, when the country's founded, says you cannot have democracy without character and you can't have character without faith. Adam Smith says virtually the same thing about the, the economy of going, this fundamentally doesn't work if you don't have a people of character. Yeah. So I'd love to just hear you talk about that. Okay, you have two different things in there, but, but the idea of regulation, you have, government has a role, then they have, they have some level of, of regulatory role, an oversight role. I mean, you, you, we argue, I have friends who are much more conservative than I am, and, and they tend to butt up against almost libertarianism where they don't want any, any rules. So I would say the government has a role in making sure, this gets goofy here, in making sure that a restaurant is clean and your food is safe. My friends would say, no, let people eat there and get sick and they'll shut that dog down and it'll be more effective than anything else. And there's probably some argument there. But what is that role of regulation? You're always dealing with the sinfulness of man. So it doesn't matter how much regulation you'll have. Here you go, the president uses this all the time. I wanna close the tax loophole. Well, that sets me off like a rocket. It's what loophole can there be? You made a tax law, if I fulfill the law, it's nothing illegal. One's man loopholes, another guy's deduction. But, but that whole idea, that whole idea of, of regulation and, and to the best you can, that's why you push it down as far. So here would be my answer to education. It, you can reform it to your green. You're gonna have all these rules. You're gonna test kids. They're gonna cheat. The teachers are gonna cheat. Principals are gonna cheat. 
give the kid a voucher, let the kid go to the school, and let the schools produce what they're going to produce. So there's a role for regulation, but, but you're dealing with the sinfulness of man. And, and it's really interesting. The one thing about a free market and capitalism is that the one economic system in the world that assumes you will do what's best for you. I assume in a transaction you're going to do what's best for you. Even if you good, give me a good deal, you're giving me a good deal because you think I'll tell Tyler, Tyler, you need to go over here. So, so there's that, that regulatory nature, that, that limiting factor that, that is best done by markets and individuals the best you can, if that, if that makes sense. Well, that's great. I, um, I want to honor your guys' time. So we have two minutes. I want to do two concluding things that we mentioned on political gridlock. Um, specifically of just you understanding what we were trying to get out of tonight. Um, so the first one is we said that political gridlock is here, one, because we can't even have a conversation about this. So we were trying to create one civil discourse of saying we've got to, this has to be an aim, you know, a, a prayer topic. And then specifically, you know, we want to have convicted civility so that you can have a stance that Tom can stand up and have convictions on market systems, views of that, you know, free market, democracy, all of those kinds of things, deep convictions about how school systems get happen, but we can begin to have a dialogue on it. If we can't have a dialogue on it, you're never going to fix it. And then I'm just going to say this, the big one that he, we were getting at when he made the observation about Kennedy right, in 400 million special interest groups is, I'm going to make it really simple, is selfishness. Is that people are fundamentally absorbed in themselves with no idea of how to think about the common good. Now, I want to make, we said here, we're going to make biblical foundations and theological ones. Here's a theological foundation. Now, think with me for a minute here. If we believed that all of the world was created by God, okay, a God, right, and he created everything, that means his print is on everything, is on the entire cosmos, right? It's made, and we as human beings are the only thing in creation that's made in his image, right? Now, God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which means he's both a community and individuals. If you understand the Trinity and the way the Bible teaches it, the Son is not the Father, and the Father's not the Son, right? The Spirit is not the Son, and the Son's not the Spirit. So you have community and individuality in the Trinity. If this is the true story of the whole world, in which God is the Lord over all of this, and we look at a problem, it's going to be fundamentally at the core. Now, we're Christians here, and we're speaking from a biblical worldview. It's a God problem. And what I'm submitting to you is one of our huge problems is we don't even have a thought of the common good anymore. It's all individual. Now, this was the answer to that question. I'm not saying get rid of the individual because that's not godlike either. But we have to begin to develop what does it look like to talk about the common good and the common good in the 21st century where we do live in a pluralistic society with people of different views. What does that look like to be a public commons where not everybody believes the same things? 
where not everybody has the same view of economics, where not everybody has the same view of education, where not every, everybody has the same view of religious ideas. That's one thing, that's a theological idea. The other one is Jesus, right? So Jesus himself in Philippians chapter two talks about, and he's the essence of what it means to be human. And he talks about, you need to consider the needs of others as more significant than yourself. So if all anybody's thinking about, this is another idea, if all anybody's thinking about is themselves and their own best interest, it's not even based upon what Jesus says in their own best interest. It will come back to fundamentally bite us, which is why Tom would say our culture's in a dark spot, which is true because we're going against the grain of the way God made the universe. Fundamentally, it doesn't, it won't work out like that. So um, we'll leave on that front, the desire to prayerfully say we want to be able to create civil discourse, a real look at the way we view politics, how much of it is just solely through an individualistic lens. So there's a challenge to think about it in a common good lens. We're going to have some moments in here more in the preceding weeks where we get in some groups and really have some dialogue to model civil discourse where we'll have opportunities to get deeper into some issues as well. But the next couple weeks, we're gonna try to build a biblical framework for what does the Bible really say about government and engaging in public life. So let me pray and we'll head out. Father, thank you uh, for your grace and mercy. Uh, I just pray and thank you for the reality that you gave us minds and you enabled us to think. God, I pray against our tendency to just try to make things trite or comfortable and convenient. God, let us think with the minds that you've given us. We humbly admit we do not have all the answers. And God, we want to be civil people. But God, give us convictions and the right convictions and lead us into truth. We know that your word is truth. But God, give us wisdom in all of the areas that your word doesn't speak directly to. But God gives us the wisdom to think them through. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, have a good week.